It's, uh, it's so great when the Bible is read so wonderfully well. I reckon, uh, Wendy and Mary, you might get a gig with Audible. Uh, really, this isn't another illustration for us, is it? <laughs> Got an ice pack on the lectern. Haven't injured myself speaking yet. Probably not for me yet. Quite entertaining, but not what I was after to start with. Um, if you haven't figured out, I'm Tim. Sarah will be up in a little while, and uh, we'll sort of do a bit of a double act. Uh, we're not going to do alternate words or intersperse ourselves into each other's part. Uh, we'll do a couple of bits each. It's a great joy to uh, be here this morning um, and to speak. Could anybody tell me what this is? I'll give you a clue. It's generally found on beaches. Pumice? Not a bad guess. If you found this and you knew what it was, you'd be very happy, so more happy than if it was pumice. It's from a whale? We're on the right track. In 2016, some fishermen from Oman found 80 kilos of this stuff, which netted them, pun intended, nearly $5 million. Uh, it's ambergris. It's a weird, smelly substance, but it's extremely valuable. It comes from the whale's intestine or digestive system, and it happens to be really important in the manufacture of perfume. It gives an earthy, musky, old wooden building note to the smell profile. Well, that's what they say. <laughs> uh, some think it smells more fecal than earthy. Again, that's what they say. Uh, it's described as floating gold for its rarity and value. But if you don't know what ambergris is, you might walk past it on the beach, uh, something worth thousands or millions of dollars just lying there on the tide line. There was a discovery, a bloke wandering on the beach in Australia a handful of years ago. I think he pulled up a piece that was worth about 70 grand. Our assumptions and our preconceptions can prejudice us. They can blind us to the presence of great treasure and value. And sometimes our inability to put aside presumptions and prejudice isn't limited to weird gut rocks on the beach. As we've studied Mark, we've seen people blinded to who Jesus is because of their assumptions and expectations about the Son of God and how he should speak and act. What we think about Jesus and who we think he is uh, will determine how we respond to him. We're in our series, The Kingdom Comes Near, looking at Mark's gospel. And this week we follow Jesus' encounter with two people at opposite ends of Jewish society. A man and a woman, one named, one anonymous. They're different, yet both are in desperate need. Let me pray for us. Lord God, as we come uh, before your word and before you this morning, we ask that you might speak to us and you might change our hearts, renew and refresh us as we love and follow you. Amen. Uh, Jesus and his disciples have left the Gentile-dominated area of the Ten Cities. They're back in a Jewish town somewhere in the region of uh, Gennesaret near Capernaum. Mark establishes that we're back in the Jewish uh, village, uh, in a Jewish village, through the introduction of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Who would have thought? The Jewish character of the town is significant for what follows. 
On seeing Jesus, Jairus falls at his feet and pleads for help. This is not typical behaviour for a religious leader, for a synagogue ruler. He would have had social status. He would have had a valued reputation in the community. Uh, Men like him don't tend to fall on their knees. Men like him don't tend to beg for help. But this is a desperate man. His young daughter's very sick or worse than that. She's actually dying. It's hard for us to imagine a time before hospitals, before antibiotics, before vaccines. In the world of the first century, life was precarious and fragile. If you did manage to get enough to eat, uh, a fever, a rusty nail, a broken bone could still kill you. Now, we don't know what illness plagued Jairus' daughter, only that her life uh, was hanging in the balance. There's a sense of urgency here. Jairus is a desperate man. He meets Jesus at the lake. Perhaps he's waiting for him. Perhaps he's been waiting there for some time, hoping for his return and for a cure for his daughter. And on seeing Jesus, Jairus demonstrates two things that he knows about Jesus. That Jesus is powerful and that he's loving. Jairus senses that Jesus is more than just a man. He says... Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Jairus is confident in Jesus' capacity and his willingness to heal. He has faith in him. Uh, Mark's recording of Jesus' response is deceptively simple. So Jesus went with him. Jesus responds to Jairus' faith and humility. Unlike so many of the other religious leaders who Jesus meets, Jairus knows he needs dramatic intervention and that only Jesus can provide it. Sarah's warming up down there. It's almost the end of the over. We'll change ends and she'll be back up here. But Jairus, just trying to tie in with the uh, Flanagan illustrations from before... But Jairus wasn't the only person waiting for a miracle. When Jesus arrived on the shores of this Jewish village, he's met uh, with a crowd. Before he enters the town, he's surrounded. And Mark emphasises the surge of people that swell around Jesus. Five times he refers to the multitude who are pressing against him. Okay, and that's where the humour ends when Tim steps down. (laughs) It's easy to be lost in a crowd, isn't it? To be unseen and anonymous, and that's what life would have been like for this woman. Mark describes it like this. A woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years, and in that single sentence... Mark conveys misery and suffering that goes well beyond the physical. If you were a Jewish woman living in first century Palestine, chronic and consistent bleeding would make your life almost intolerable, as well as pain and discomfort. Her illness made her unclean, ceremonially unclean, which meant, in practice, she couldn't draw near to God. She couldn't go to the synagogue. She couldn't meet with her community. She was an outcast. 
She couldn't even worship God. She couldn't even pray with other believers. And because she was chronically sick and had been for 12 years, she had no way of becoming clean. Everything and everyone who touched her would be unclean and need purification. No one would want to touch her. No one would want to go near her lest they would have to go through the process of becoming clean again. Being an outsider, having this chronic illness, meant that she probably was unmarried. And because of the nature of her illness, she was probably infertile, or at least perceived that way. And so her chance of being married and the protections that went with it in the first century were almost impossible. Mark tells us that she tried to get better, she sought medical help, she sought doctors, and she spent all she had trying to get well. But her illness became worse, and now added to that was poverty. This terribly unwell woman had no hope for a cure. What a desperately sad situation. To the world around her, she is someone of no consequence. Worse than that, she's unclean. But she had something. She'd heard about Jesus, and she had faith in him. Mark says, she came up behind him in the, cloud, in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. It's really hard for us to fully understand this woman's life and her context, which means it's really hard for us to appreciate how astonishing this interaction with Jesus is. For us, sitting on this side of the new covenant, this side of the cross, in the 20th century in Australia, Things like ceremonial uncleanness seem baffling and possibly unfair. But this was the context, this was the world that Jesus entered and turned upside down. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we're actually offended by what we read, especially regarding ancient practices and behaviours. But maybe part of the problem's with us. We've got to acknowledge where we're coming from, where we live, what we believe, what our assumptions and attitudes are. So let's just keep that in mind as we jump back to the Old Testament. A few weeks ago, Tom raised this issue of uncleanness when we studied the healing of a man with leprosy. Leprosy was one way that someone could be made unclean, but it wasn't the only way. According to Old Testament law, there were several ways to become unclean. Skin diseases was one, contact with dead bodies, Bodily fluids, including semen and blood. Mold. Anyone had mold lately? (laughs) Unclean animals, so, you know, pigs, shellfish, all of that kind of thing. And Gentiles, so the non-Jews. In the Old Testament, purity for God's people was important for a few reasons. If they wanted to be near to God, to come to the tabernacle and later the temple, they needed to be clean. They needed to repent from their sin and be free of impurity. And also, as God's chosen people, they needed to be pure and righteous so they could represent him to the nations and draw others to God. Being unclean didn't necessarily mean you'd committed a specific sin, but it did mean you couldn't go to the priest and make a sacrifice for your sins until you were clean. You couldn't draw near to God until you were clean. So how did you get clean? You had to wash, you had to separate yourself from everyone for a few days, sometimes make an offering, and then you could rejoin God's people. 
It was a lot of time, it was a lot of effort. And this gives us a clue about the holiness of God, but that's a sermon for another day. The Old Testament law that affected our woman in this passage was pretty full on. It's from Leviticus 15. For most women, bleeding from periods or after childbirth is something that would come to an end. They could wash, wait, make an offering, and then they'd be clean again, ready to rejoin God's people. But for 12 years, Mark tells us, this woman endured constant bleeding without any opportunity to be made clean. This meant under Jewish law, she had no way of seeking forgiveness for sin. She had no way of being part of her community. In these passages from Leviticus and Haggai, we can see the unclean, clean business only worked one way. If you were unclean, you could affect other people. You could pass it on. It was contagious. But you couldn't be made clean by, you know, hanging out with someone who was clean or touching something that was sort of holy or consecrated. Or could you? More on that later. Let's get back to the woman. There are a lot of people who Jesus heals during his ministry. This, I think this is the only secret stealthy healing. But I think we can guess why she approached him this way why she was reluctant to present herself before him and the crowd. She had faith that Jesus could heal her just by touching his clothes, that she could be made clean but not have to endure the stares of the crowd or the shaming. Mark tells us that as soon as she touched Jesus' clothes, she was healed, that she felt it immediately. And that could have been that. She could have slipped away in the crowd without speaking a word. But an encounter with Jesus can never be simply transactional. And just as her healing was immediate, so was Jesus' awareness of the contact. He realised that power had gone out from him. And he asked, who touched his clothes? The disciples think he's being unreasonable. So many people around him. How could Jesus recognise the touch of just one? And his clothes? Can't he see all the people bustling and jump-bumping into him? Honestly, why did it even matter? The disciples can't see beyond Jesus' humanity. They can't see that he's more than a man. They're blinded by their assumptions of what is reasonable, what's possible, even for Jesus. Which makes me think, is my picture of Jesus too small? Perhaps you worry, as I do sometimes, that Jesus is just too busy or too important to care about things that might be crushing me or crushing you. Maybe I shouldn't bother him. But the Gospels reveal that Jesus cares about the individual as well as the multitude, even the individual that no one else notices. He could have left his slip to what's away, but he doesn't. But he also doesn't shame her or force her to admit what she's done. He waits patiently for her to come forward. The woman, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Jesus has put his important task of healing an official's daughter on hold to interact with an outcast, a woman, someone of no consequence even to her own people. But Jesus doesn't view or rank people the way his world does, or the way we do. He turns the world upside down. Yes, she's already been healed, but through this interaction, Jesus restores her 
and also ensures that there's no misunderstanding, no mistaking about this miracle. It's her faith in him that's the source of the healing. He doesn't have a magic cloak. It's not a bizarre coincidence. And before this crowd of people, he affirms the powerful faith of an outcast. He publicly declares her clean, freed, and a daughter. When Jesus pronounces her faith, he uses a Greek word that also means saved and restored. It's not just her body that has been cleansed. When he calls her daughter, he treats her with love and dignity that she wouldn't have known for 12 years. This interaction is so important for the woman, but it's also important for us. By inviting her to declare her faith, Jesus shepherds her confession, not of sin, but of her faith in him. And it reminds us that for us, faith in Jesus is not a private matter. Yes, it's a matter of personal conviction, but we're not to be private, secret Christians. To be a Christian is to believe in our heart and confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord. We can't accept the mercies of Christ and slip away into the crowd. We need to fall at our Saviour's feet, acknowledging our deep and abiding need for him. The word daughter reminds us of Jairus, who's been waiting all this time for his miracle, waiting for Jesus to heal his daughter. And we wonder, as he waits, is he getting impatient and anxious? Perhaps when he hears how long the woman has been unwell, 12 years, his his daughter's entire life, he's struck. Didn't want to miss my cue. I was so busy listening, I just almost kept sitting there. Um, While Jesus is still speaking, Jairus receives crushing news. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? These words are heart-rending, heartless. These messages, messengers have been sent from the synagogue ruler's house with a terrible update. I'm not sure how you are at delivering bad news, but I hope you're better than this. They deliver it with stunning insensitivity. But even more problematic than their blunt words is their ignorance of Jesus' true identity. To them, he's just a teacher, possibly a wise man, obviously busy, They can't see his divinity nor his loving heart. Jairus has all hope stripped away. His daughter is dead. His desperation has turned to sorrow and fear. But Jesus has not left his side and counsels him to believe that the one who can heal the sick can also raise the dead. Don't be afraid. Just believe. His faith is tested, sure. It's one thing to have faith in a healer, but who can raise the dead? As he arrives at his home, the sounds of grief and mourning confirm the words of the envoys. A group of mourners, perhaps extended family and community members, have gathered to grieve. But Jesus dismisses them. The child is not dead, but asleep. And they laugh at him. Like the disciples and the messengers, these mourners can't see who Jesus is and what he can do. In contrast to the public healing of the woman just moments before, Jesus conducts this miracle in private. Only the girl's parents and his closest disciples. In this politically unstable place where prophets are executed and nationalists are awaiting a military messiah, 
Jesus is not yet, not yet ready to declare his kingship to all. He takes the dead girl by the hand and speaks to her in Aramaic, Talitha Kum, and she immediately stands up and begins to walk around. His practical instructions to her parents are both for them and his disciples. She needs something to eat. She's not a ghost or a spirit. She's a fully alive, resurrected child who needs food to strengthen her after her illness. Now, Jesus' command to keep the miracle a secret may confuse us. Surely blanket coverage is much better, much better marketing than his secretive approach. He's got crowds nearby. Why not show everyone what he can do? Wouldn't that be a better approach to get more followers? But Jesus is not a first century influencer. He's God come near. And his purpose is not popularity, but the astonishing conquest of death and the salvation of humanity. If the disciples teach us anything, it's that people then and now are blind to Jesus' identity. He can raise the dead, heal the sick, feed multitudes, and yet it won't be enough to convince that he's God. If the disciples, after all they've seen and heard, are anticipating an earthly conquering kingdom, is it any surprise that the fickle crowds will also misunderstand? In this passage, there are two occasions where Jesus has contact with someone unclean, the bleeding woman and the dead child. In both situations, the impurity has no effect on him, but rather his holiness cleanses, heals and revives. How is it that Jesus isn't tainted by contact with the impure? How can he make the unclean clean? It's a significant theological question. And it gets to the heart of who Jesus is. And the simple answer is because he's God. It's only God who can transform sinful, impure humans into saved, purified children of God. We get a foretaste of this in the prophet Ezekiel when the Lord declares to the exiles in Babylon, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities. God himself can purify those who are unclean. And so it is when God's son draws near to unclean, broken people. The gospel writers are in no doubt about who Jesus is. He's both fully human and fully God. And so he can do for us what no rituals, ceremonies or sacrifices could ever do. The Gospel of John puts Jesus' arrival like this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Jesus pitched his tent with us. Literally, he tabernacled among us. And the unclean, the sinful, the needy and the desperate experience forgiveness and mercy, cleansing and restoration when they bring their need before Jesus. There's one more interaction that we're going to look at this morning. After Jesus leaves this village, he heads to Nazareth, his hometown, which is about 50 k's south of Capernaum. And as we read Mark, the first thing we notice is the absence of crowds. It's no one to meet him, no group of men or women hoping to catch a glimpse of this famous teacher and healer. The first exchanges are after he's taught in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And for a moment, it seems like maybe they've got it. Maybe they've realised who this man is. Mark tells us that many who heard him were amazed. 
Where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom he's been given? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? So far, so good. Maybe his own people will see that this wise and powerful teacher is someone worth putting their trust in, that he's actually their long-awaited saviour. But they can't see past the familiar. They can't put aside their preconceptions. Hey, we know this guy. We know his mum and his brothers and sisters. Didn't, didn't he used to be a tradie like his dad? He's just like them. They can see his wisdom and power, but there's a disconnect. The wisdom has been given to him. Somehow he's obtained the ability to perform miracles. And they don't like it. They're offended. They can't see him as God. How they think God should be and should act and should speak is not what they see in Jesus. There's a story about an American president during an election campaign and he's visiting a nursing home, chatting with the residents and after a while he pauses and says to one of them, do you know who I am? One of them answers, no dear, but if you ask the nurse, she'll tell you. (laughs) They don't see a president sitting among them but someone just like them, a bit old, a bit confused, And it's like the Nazarenes. They can't see beyond Jesus' humanity. He's just like them. Mark's next words might surprise us. He could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Does this mean Jesus is restricted by our faith, our lack of faith? Is that like his kryptonite? Is he like Tinkerbell? If you don't believe in him, he can't perform. Well, no, and emphatically no. The miracles of Jesus, what some translations describe as his mighty works, are not reliant on human faith. Think about the feeding of the 5,000, the calming of the storm, the exorcism of legion, the resurrection. There is nothing lacking in Jesus' power, but he does not force himself on anyone. He doesn't force his miracles, his teaching, or even his presence When Jesus heals, it's in response to faith, to an entreaty, to an acknowledgement of who he is. He doesn't make his family and neighbours believe in him. He doesn't perform miracles and wonders just to convince them. And despite Mark saying Jesus couldn't do any miracles, he then clarifies by saying, except lay his hand on a few people and heal them. For those who seek him out, those who acknowledge Jesus, he will always respond in loving power. The great tragedy for these people of Nazareth is that they had the Lord of the ages in their midst and they neither recognised him nor loved him. How often do we want God to fit into our picture of what he should be like? How often do we think he should act in a particular way, say particular things? And instead of considering the claims of Jesus with humility, do we demand that he tick the boxes of what would make an acceptable God and saviour? And this is my question for you. How do you respond to Jesus? Are you like the people of Nazareth? Is Jesus perhaps too familiar? Or the messengers from Jairus' house? He's an interesting teacher, wise and popular, but he doesn't want to be bothered with me. Perhaps you see him like the mourners. He's got a bit of a tenuous grasp on reality and certainly can't do anything meaningful. Or maybe you're someone in the crowd... You're hoping to see something special. 
You'll come close and you'll listen, but you don't want to commit to anything. Or maybe you're like the Jewish woman or like Jairus. You might be facing an impossible situation, suffering in some way, just desperate to be made clean. And you've seen this man, this extraordinary man, who speaks words of life and breathes grace and hope, the one who embraces the untouchable, raises the dead, the one who turns the world upside down. He is God come near, the greatest treasure of all. He's the only one who can make things right, the only one we need, the one who is worthy of our worship. Don't walk past Jesus. Fall at his feet and hear his words to you. Don't be afraid. Just believe.